Savor 2011, coverage by Craft Beer Radio, from Saturday, June 4th. Private Tasting Salon, Chocolate City, up for the downstroke, with Fal Allen, from Anderson Valley. My name's Steve Broad. I'm the brewmaster for Free State Brewing Company in Lawrence, Kansas. Uh, I will be your host introducer for this evening, so um, I'll, I'll take care of letting you know who this character that nobody's ever heard of over here is and uh, move things along from there. Uh, Savor, now in its fourth year and already established as one of America's premier beer and food events, is brought to you by the Brewers Association, the small nonprofit trade organization representing the small independent brewers of America. Uh, I serve on the board of directors for the Brewers Association and also serve as chair of the events committee, which guides events such as Savor and also the Great American Beer Festival. Festival, another one of uh, America's premier beer events, this year taking place in late September. Um, if you like these events, if you want to find out more about what's going on in the wide world of craft beer, uh, you can log in to craftbeer.com, your best source for up-to-date information on what's going on in craft beer. In addition to the efforts of numerous volunteers, a fantastic Brewers Association staff, yourselves who come out and make these events what they are, uh, and the small independent craft brewers who are out there in the Great Hall uh, pouring their beers and talking to everybody tonight. There are a few other folks that we need to give some special thanks to for their support. Uh, They are the Reyes Beverage Group, the Brewery Omegon, Dogfish Head Craft Brewery, Samuel Adams, craftbeer.com, Allagash Brewing Company, the Brooklyn Brewery, Flying Dog Ales, Full Sail Brewing Company, New Belgium Brewing Company, Rogue Ales, Saranac, Sierra Nevada Brewing Company, Victory Brewing Company, Crosby and Baker Limited, Draft, Draft Magazine, GreatBrewers.com, Oak Beverages Incorporated, and Spiegelau, uh, who have provided the glassware for the event. And if you somehow are not hanging sufficiently on every word that... that uh, Uh, Fal has to say tonight and you miss something, all of these salons are being recorded for podcast listening by craftbeerradio.com, giving you the opportunity to hear it all over again. Fal Allen is the brewmaster at Anderson Valley Brewing Company in Boonville, California. His colorful history in the world of craft brewing includes stints at the Red Hook Brewery in Seattle, the Pike Place Brewery in Seattle, where he served eight years as head brewer, and also a hitch abroad as the brewmaster and brand ambassador for Archipelago Brewing Company in Singapore. Uh, I met Fal when we were both in the early stages of our careers in brewing, and I have enjoyed the opportunity to watch him flourish both as a brewer, a beer judge, and a prolific beer writer on a number of different brewing subjects. It certainly came as no surprise to me when Fowl was awarded the 1998 Russell Shearer Award for uh, innovation and achievement in craft brewing, in part because this award, one of the criteria for this award is that not only do you exhibit uh, creativity and innovation, but you share it with your fellow brewers freely. And Fowl has always certainly been a fabulous uh, member of the brewing community in that respect. 
Tonight in Chocolate City, up for the downstroke, Val will be pairing barrel-aged sour Barney Flats oatmeal stout and Brother David's Belgian-style double ale with fine chocolates. Beer and chocolate is certainly one of the classic uh, pairings that's out there. However, it never really gets old. There are so many different varieties, so many uh, different possibilities that may come out, and always room for a few surprises. So uh, without further ado, I will turn it over to Fal. I hope you all have a wonderful evening. And if you have questions, please feel free to interject at any point, and we will uh, we'll get on with the show. Fal? Thank you, Steve. bit like Joan Baez or something with this thing here. Uh, yes, yeah, I've known Steve a long time. He was the uh, reviewer for a book that uh, Dick Cantwell and I wrote quite a few years ago, and uh, he was mercifully kind to us and yet helped us make a much better book. So thank you, Steve, for that and for the introduction. Um, where to start so much? Uh, we'll be trying some beer and chocolate tonight. Uh, we have two different beers. One is a Belgian-style double uh, that we've been making for about, on and off for about 12 years. Uh, it was made for Dave Keene, who owns the Tornado uh, Pub in San Francisco. How many of you have been to the Tornado? Well, those who haven't, if you get out to San Francisco, make sure you drop by. And don't be offended by the bartenders. They, yes, they're just naturally that mean and nasty. Um, but the beer, is, the beer selection is awesome. Uh, so it is as traditional as we could make a Belgian-style double. Uh, it's a very big, roasty uh, beer. There's a lot of banana ester in it. A lot of the, the yeast character comes through, and uh, we'll be pairing that with a chocolate. And the other beer we have tonight is a sour stout. We have made the Barney Flats oatmeal stout since we opened uh, 23 years ago. And we have been barrel-aging beers for about... 14 or 15 years, and this was the first one that we barrel-aged, and the first thing we did with it was we put it into a port barrel, and that we were very happy with the way that came out. It had a lot of interesting flavors. We we're very lucky to have a, a port producer just down the road from us. Uh, now, how many, how many of you all know where Anderson Valley is? It's a good thing that I do. Um, Anderson Valley is kind of a unique place, so I'll, give you, I'll tell you a little bit about it, and it'll give you a little bit of idea about us and our beers. Um, we're in Northern California. If you hop in your car and go across the Golden Gate Bridge, you go about two hours north, and then you take an exit and go about uh, 45 minutes west on an incredibly windy, narrow road. Um, and this windy, narrow road is good and bad. It's bad in the fact that we can't get tanks and things in and out of there without special permits. But it's good in that it keeps us pretty isolated. And we are so isolated, and have been for uh, the last 150 years, we're so isolated that the valley has its own language called Buntling. Now, I'm not making this up. You can go look on your, you know, you Google it later. Uh, Buntling was developed in the late 1800s. In fact, let me step one little bit further back. Europeans, Caucasians, didn't discover the valley until the 1860s, late 1860s. And it was, you know, the rest of California had been, pretty much been discovered, but no one found this valley. It's very secluded. And the first people that came there were mostly from Arkansas, um, homesteaders. 
And it remained isolated for quite, well, it's isolated today. Um, and the name Booneville, it's named after one of the descendants of, of Daniel Boone. And when, when someone says you're in the boonies, Booneville is truly out there in the boonies. And Booneling was developed uh, so that the local people could talk about foreigners, who they call bright lighters, uh, without them knowing about what they were saying. And in the 1880s and 1890s, there wasn't a whole lot to do out there anyway, so making fun of people that aren't from there was a good time. And there were, most of the language consists of... Uh, how do you delicately put this? Uh, fucking. Because <laughs> uh, that, that's what all they did. So there's a lot of words for that, and there's a lot of words for other things related to that. And... Uh, what happens when two people who are in different families get together. But anyway, it's a very, it's a fun language. I encourage you to, you know, learn a little bit about it. And the language started to die out in the 30s and 40s. And when our brewery opened up, we decided that we'd like to keep the language alive. Uh, if you YouTube it, you can see a lot of, uh, Johnny Carson had some local characters on. And they would speak a little boontling uh, for Johnny Carson and... You know, you can look those up on YouTube. They're quite amusing. Uh, and there aren't very many people who speak Boontling anymore. So we've tried to keep them alive with the names of our beers. Uh, so all of our beers have Boontling names. Boont Amber is a... Boont is the word for Boonville. Uh, the Barney Flats Oatmeal Stout. Barney Flats is a, a area in, in Anderson Valley. So how did I get here? Yeah. We're, did I mention we're remote? Um, so we, it's a very unusual valley, and our beers are a little unusual, too. And when we started, there are a lot of wineries in the valley. That's how I got here. There are a lot of wineries in the valley. It's about 32 of them. Uh, and it's a very nice place for growing Pinot Noir grapes. Uh, the French champagne maker, Louis Roder, looked all over the world for uh, the place to put in their second vineyard, and they chose Anderson Valley. It has a very unique microclimate. It's very cold at night all year round. It's very, very hot in the day during the summer, during the growing season. And there are about 32 wineries in there. They make some very, very nice champagne or sparkling wine and some very nice red wines. Um, so if you're in California, don't bother with that Sonoma-Napa thing. Just come straight up to Mendocino and uh, visit us there. So... Because we're up there, we have access to wine barrels and not so much bourbon barrels. So the first barrel aging we did was in wine barrels, and the first one we did was uh, this port barrel. And if you may know Silverado, uh, Silver Oaks uh, Winery, very nice winery. They make delicious wines. And all of their barrels go to the family port making, Meyer family's uh, vineyards, and then we get the barrels from them. And so we do a lot of port barrel aging. And once the barrels have aged long enough and sucked out all the port flavor that we'd like, um, we then sour them. And that's where this sour stout has come from. Did that take long enough? That was a complicated enough explanation for everyone. And so we'll try that tonight. And we have intentionally soured it uh, with a bacteria that is uh, naturally occurring in the valley. And we aren't exactly sure what it is, but we, we think it's Pediococcus damnosis for you biology folks. Uh, we also make a blended barrel-aged beer called Gatlin Damnosis, and uh, it's a blend of different sour beers that we've created. So we, uh, I think we'll get that, do that one second. You guys ready for a beer? Okay. I could keep talking, but I think beer. So 
Looks like they're going to start with the, the sour stout. And since this isn't a regular production beer, uh, we never bottle it, and it never leaves the brewery. It very, very rarely ever leaves the brewery, even on draft. So what you guys are trying tonight is something that I hand-bottled myself. It's very special. Uh, you're not going to find this at any store. Uh, you'll very rarely even find it, even at the brewery, because we go through it so quickly. Once we put it on draft, it kind of disappears. And I've also brought a, a third beer up. We had some extra stout downstairs. So if anybody would like to compare this after this round with the normal stout, just, uh, just ask one of the servers and they, they can bring you some and pour it. So how many folks like sour beer? Oh, very good, very good. Now, when they first asked me to do this, I, I wasn't certain that the sour was going to work with the chocolate. Um, I, I had a very tough job to go out and buy a bunch of chocolates and try them with the sour beer to see if it if it'd work. Uh, but I think it does. I think the sourness doesn't overpower the chocolate, and the underlying beer works very well with it. Anybody have questions? Foul is the uh, oh sorry I didn't mean to surprise you over there is the it, you know is the damnosis part of the, of the 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 you know the pedigree on these bacteria because most brewers of less um, stout spirit and brave heart uh, see something like that and they go oh damn we're in trouble now well when we first saw it we had a little bit of that moment um, by and large when you run a brewery you don't want to see other things besides your house yeast in, in the beer. And you try, you take extreme measures to keep that from happening. Now, the exception to this is barrel-aged beers, soured barrel-aged beers. And even with regular barrel-aged beers, we, we're very particular about where they're stored and how they're stored. We try to keep the non-sour barrels away from the sour barrels as much as we can. We don't want to accidentally sour anything. Um, so in America today, I think pretty much every brewery, at least the everyone that I know of, is doing some barrel-aging. And... When you sour it, you can either go to your regular yeast supplier and get a bacteria from them, or if you're foolish or brave, depending on how you look at it, you can you know, use something that naturally occurs around you. You know, Vinny Chalerzo, who owns Russian River, uh, has his own souring bacteria. Uh, he's in Sonoma County, and it's a unique bacteria to that area, so he uses that for his souring. And we're lucky enough to have found one that we like and uh, think gives a interesting flavor. Do you have another glass? Okay, so I could have some. Question? Yes. We have isolated, but we can't completely identify it. You know, you look at these things under the microscope and, you know, you, do, you can gram stain them and eliminate some and, you know, put them on selective media and eliminate another bunch. But at some point you get down to just looking at them and trying to decide by looking at them and looking in a book what you have. And you can't always do it because oftentimes a bacteria will drift from what's in the book. So you may think, well... Clearly, this is some sort of pediococcus because it forms tetrads and it looks like that. But, you know, you're never sure unless you genetically type it, which we don't have the money to do. 
We're a small poor brewery. This is a little bit cold, so it needs to does need to warm up some. But whenever you, you are trying a beverage, wine, whiskey, beer, the first thing you want to do is look at it. And this is going to give you some idea of what, what's going to come next. So you can see this is very dark. It's completely opaque. You give it a little swirl. The head is rather delicate. It's from the barrel aging. Uh, it loses a lot of carbonation. We actually put a little more back in there when we keg it. And then the next thing you want to do is smell, just like wine. Get your nose involved. That's why you should always drink beer from a glass, not, not from a bottle. But you guys paid extra for this, so you know that. <laughs> and I, I, when I smell this, I, I immediately pick up the sour note and a woodiness. Uh, I definitely get a barrel-aged character. So this particular batch spent about eight months in the oak barrel. So it definitely has some woodiness to it. So after getting your nose in there, you want to taste some. That's definitely sour. Oh, it's more sour than it used to be even. Another problem with sour beers is that they continue to develop or change uh, unless you pasteurize them. There's no way to stop that. The bacteria is still in there working on it. So this beer is substantially more sour than when I bottled it. But that's a good thing. No, really, really. So now how many of you have tried it with the chocolate? Is it working? I think one than the other. And so when I taste these, I like to take a bite, then take a sip, and let the, you know, the interplay take place. And one of the things I thought, one of the reasons I wanted to use this beer and what I thought was interesting is because the sourness is so different than the chocolate. They have nothing in common. It's a complete contrast. And whenever you're pairing food and beer or wine, you want to look for three things. First, you want to look for impact. You want a beverage that won't overwhelm the food or a food that will over, won't overwhelm the beer. So if you're having blackened cod... You don't want it with a really delicate white wine. You just overpower it. And you may not want it with a delicate wit beer either. Also overpower it. So you try and match up the impact. And the other two things you can look for are either contrast or complement. Now, contrasting is much easier, almost impossible to mess up. And then this is a, a good example of a contrast. The sweetness and the sourness completely contrast each other. But what's kind of interesting is underneath that, the chocolate kind of complements the beer or vice versa because these, there are kind of chocolatey, roasty notes in the beer that are picked up in, in the candy, in the chocolate. Comments, questions? Do you agree? Oh, really nice. You take a bite of chocolate and you drink a little of the stout. It completely changes the flavor. And then once you've swallowed, it goes back again to the sweet chocolate. I 
I haven't had that one yet, so I look forward to that. I have a sucky job, don't I? Yeah, the caramel opens up and brings up another thing in the beer. And the, one of the things that we like about the, the bacteria that we're using in this is that most pediococcus carry a substantial amount of funk with it. And some people like that funk and most people don't. Uh, they, pediococcus can throw a lot of uh, uh, diacetyl, and, which is a butterscotchy flavor. And at low levels, it's an interesting kind of addition to a, a beer but at higher levels, it just is, it's just weird tasting. And they can also make some pretty barnyardy, funky, earthy... Uh, what's, what's the kind word for sewage? <laughs> yeah, that's not, that's not it. Uh, but it can make some really earthy flavors sometimes. And that, once you get one of those sorts of infections, that, that, barrel is, that barrel is gone. That becomes a planter. And so we're, you know, we're very happy to have discovered, you know, or stumbled onto the bacteria that we, we now are reusing and reusing uh, in our sour beers because it's not so funky. It's not too weird. It has a little bit of that, and I think this, this round candy brings a little bit of that out underneath, a little funk, which is kind of cool. Now, how many of you would like to try the regular Barney Flats stout? Oh, everyone. Good. I'm, um... So that's the small bottle? Small bottle? Yeah, that's the size. Uh, how, how long did you say this was in the barrel? The barrel? This was in the barrel about uh, eight months. Most of, them, most of our barrel-aged beers, barrel-aged beers excuse me, take about six to eight months to get sufficiently sour. And this has been in the bottle. I bottled this up about two months ago in, in preparation for this. So it's had a, maybe eight or maybe ten months to sour. Another interesting thing is that the bacteria that's souring it, unlike yeast, doesn't produce a lot of carbon dioxide. So you can put it into a bottle without the worry of the bottle exploding later on. Whereas sometimes if you put a yeast with, uh, into a bottle and it still has sugar in there to work on, it can build up so much carbonation that the bottles can literally explode. So there'll be no exploding bottles. Question? Yeah, you started off with the uh, sour beer, and, and we've seen a lot of sour beer that I think there's been in this neighborhood. Um, what do you think the conversation is like with a lot of sour beer? Because you rushed the river, uh, especially a lot of the West Coast beers, there's been a lot of sour beer. Is that, do you think that's the new trend? Is it going to keep going? Uh, the question is for the recording, because I know you guys all heard it. <laughs> do you think that uh, sour beer is the new trend? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, explicitively. Uh, yeah, I think quite literally every brewery in America has some barrel beers aging somewhere. They may have one, they may have two. Uh, we, and, you know, I, I worked at the brewery for five years from 2000 to 2005, and then I went to Asia to work for five years, and I just recently came back about a year ago. And when I came back, we had eight or ten barrels in production. Now we have 50. We made a real conscious effort to get into that and it wasn't because we thought it was going to be the next new thing we just didn't like doing it and uh, the brewers have a lot of fun with it but having over that one year period I have seen a, a lot more breweries uh, starting up there's a brewery in Portland, Oregon Cascade Brewing Company 
Um, if you guys have never had any of their beers, you should. And if you get a chance to have their sour beers, you absolutely should. They have a pub now in uh, downtown Portland, or just out of downtown. And it's all sour, barrel-aged stuff. And right before I started back at Anderson Valley, I went to visit Ron Gansberg, the, the brewer there, the owner brewer. And he took me on a tour of his barrel room. And in the first two minutes, I realized how far behind the curve I'd gotten in Asia. Ron has over 150 barrels in his barrel house. He's doing all kinds of crazy things with fruit and different bacteria. And, you know, Vinny gets a lot of credit for this, and, you know, rightly so. He has led a lot of this. Um, but there are a lot of people who have been doing barrel aging for a long time. And it's definitely, uh, I think, the new trend. Sadly, because they take so long to make. So expensive. Um, this, this sour stout that we have... There's no way that we could make money on this. We'd have to charge about $40 a bottle. So we do it because we enjoy doing it. And if you see it, any sour beer that you see that people are putting into bottles, barely make, I mean, I don't see how they, anybody can make any money doing it. Because the barrels can run you, well, if you buy new barrels, they can run you four or $500. A used bourbon barrel is about $125 without shipping. We're fortunate we pay $11 for our port barrels, <laughs> but that's because we trade for beer. Oh, wait, no, no, that's not true, tax man. No. We pay cash. So, yeah, I don't, I mean, you guys barrel age some stuff, don't you? Oh, yeah. 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 Huh? And, and both, both some local wine barrels and some bourbon barrels. Um, you know, what the local winemakers are fond of reminding us, um, or, or maybe it's just to cheer us on, is that, you know, we all believe it takes a lot of beer to make good wine. So, you know, they go out and they pick the grapes in the hot afternoon sun. Are they going to go back and drink red wine? No, I don't think so. Uh, they, they come back in and they have uh, a nice, uh, you know, lighter beer that they can uh, throw back that's got some refreshment to it. And uh, then they get on to stomping the grapes and move the rest of the way into their world. It's good to have local wineries for all kinds of reasons. Oh, yes. We never barter, never. Everything's, all the tax is paid. <laughs> um, so you got, how, how many of you tried, you all got the, the other, the original? Can you taste the similarity between the two products? A little bit? Yeah, the sour changes it dramatically. It dries it out. It kind of sucks up the softness of the oatmeal. Um, but there's still some of that underlying roasty, chocolatey flavor. And I don't think... Do you know of anybody else doing sour stouts? Not that I know of. Yeah, I think it's an unusual uh, beer to do. I've never seen another one. And that's one of the things we like... Why the reasons we like doing it is because it's so odd. Uh, I also think it's really quite a good beer. It's a very interesting beer. Uh, there's a lot going on there. So it's a fun beer. More questions? Yeah, you know, any sane brewer wouldn't do it. I mean, it's really, everything about it is the antithesis of what you want to happen in the, your regular brewery. It's infected, or, you know, if it's not, it will be. You're putting it in wood, which is porous, and almost certainly will grow bacteria at some point. Barrels can never be dry for any length of time. We left a couple barrels out uh, last weekend, and we weren't going to use them again. 
luckily. But I stuck my finger in there the other day, and it was just, it's blue with mold. So, I mean, literally, you can't leave them dry for even a couple days. Uh, the barrels are expensive. They take a lot of care. They weep gooey stuff on the floor. They're a real pain. And if the, you know, if the beers weren't so much fun, I don't think anybody would, would do it. But, you know, it's a whole unexplored or just barely explored dimension to beer. Uh, you can get wood flavors from your barrels. You can get flavors from the previous products. So that means, you know, port, wine, bourbon, scotch, rum, whiskey, uh, brandy. We do a, a brandy barrel-aged um, Belgian beer which I think is quite nice, but we run out of it very quickly, surprisingly. Uh, I think it's, you know, they're, they're fantastically interesting for the brewers and the consumers, but they're a real pain in the ass. If, if the owner really, you know, does the penciling out, we won't do them anymore. Yeah. Uh, you know, some winemakers won't even go visit Vinny's Brew Pub. You know, it's just they're so afraid of what may, they may take back on their shoes into their wineries because everything that we're doing with barrel aging is pretty much everything they don't want to happen with barrel aging, with certain exceptions. Of course, they want that wood character that comes out. But they're using, they're using fresh barrels almost always, you know. That's what they would like to use. And... Uh, we usually are not because we can't afford $400 barrels because our cases of beer aren't $200 each. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah French oak barrel, what, 450 You get those little willowy things on the outside. It's another 300 bucks. Come on, really? Willow things? Um, but, you know, interestingly, when, you, when you're doing barrel-aged beers... Uh, if you guys are bored of barrel-aged beers, just raise your hand and I'll stop. We'll move on to the next beer. Uh, but there's so much that goes into making a barrel that a lot of people don't know. You know, this is just winemakers know this inherently. It's part of being a winemaker. You know, that when you make a barrel, you have to first find the right kind of tree. You can't just, you know, whack down any kind of tree and make a barrel. Cypress, for example, probably not very good for wine unless you're making Retsina or something. So it has to be the right kind of barrel and... It, the most commonly used wood is oak, and the difference between American oak or Hungarian oak or French oak is substantially different. So first you've got to find the right kind of tree, then you've got to cut the tree down, and then you've got to whack out these chunks of wood. And then they take them and they age them, those chunks of wood that will become staves. They age them for years sometimes uh, to get them into the right condition. And then they bring them into the barrel-making process, and they have to carve them down each stave has to fit perfectly with the next one so it'll hold water. And they have to get a special type of reed to use to put the head on. It's a very complicated process. And winemakers just, they know this. They completely understand it. And when they order them, they know what country to order from and what kind of oak they want and how long they want the staves aged. And then they want the barrel toasted inside. Do they want a medium toast or a light toast or a heavy toast or... You know, they, they just know these things. They're really complicated stuff. So as a brewer, you're like, someone says to you, well, this barrel is blah, blah, and you look at them blankly thinking, really? Just send the barrel. It's going to be sour soon. But interestingly, you know, all those things become character of the beer. 
just as they, you know, became character of the wine, part of the wine's character. So it's a, those are important things for brewers to know, too. And I think a lot of brewers are just learning some of this stuff. Cedar? I've only... There's some guys in Florida. Do you know who these guys are, the Sabara box? I don't. I've heard about it, and I think I even sampled one, but I'm not sure who it is. I, yeah, Cigar City. Thank you very much. Uh, they make a cedar-age beer that's fantastic. It sounds a little wacky, but I've had it a couple times, and I really think it's a great beer. You know? Really? We've never, we've never played with that. Um, I know what a cedar cigar box costs. I can't imagine what a whole barrel would be like. I'm out. Other questions? Comments? Thoughts? Yes? Absolutely. New oak is incredibly pungent and, you know, strong in character. Um, used oak definitely has, you know, the previous product has diminished it some, and some of that flavor and character has gone into whatever was there before. Uh, and brewers are very conscious of that part of it, uh, of what was in it before. Very few people, again, use new oak in brewing, A, because it's really, really expensive, and B, because mostly what they're looking for is a softer wood character. Uh, even with this sour stout that you guys had, I believe this is the fifth or sixth time we've used that barrel, and you're still getting a fair amount of wood flavor coming out of it. And new oak, or any type of new wood, uh, the character can be overwhelming. And so, you know, you need to be conscious of that. We, when I worked for Anderson Valley originally, we put a bunch of beer into barrels and stored them up above. And we pulled most of them down and, you know, did things with them and drank them and filled those barrels again. But one of the barrels just got left up there. It was hidden in back. And uh, we pulled it down after about three years and it was undrinkable. And so we blended it off 50-50 with a straight beer, and that was undrinkable. So we blended it down again 50-50, and that was undrinkable, and then we threw it out. Sadly, a lot of beer went down the drain. But, I mean, you, you can actually get too much wood character. And a beer that we made, uh, that I made actually before I left in 2004, I think, uh, sat up on those racks for four years before they found it. And... It wasn't too woody because the barrel had been used about 15 times. So, I mean, it really depends on what kind of character you want out of your barrel. So, yeah, your question's a very good one, you know. And it is very important, new versus old, how many times it's been used, and, you know, if it's gone sour. We ready for the next beer? Steve, how are we doing on time? We have plenty. Okay, good. No rush. Hey, but before you leave the, uh, the barrel-aged beers, uh, mm-hmm. do you have any particular thoughts on, uh, you know, what beers are best suited, uh, you know, particularly for making, you know, what attributes of beers are, really make them suitable for not only the barrel-aging but the souring process? That's a very interesting question. You know, yeah, good one. I, I, there are exceptions to every rule. But I would say the darker the beer, the more suited it is towards barrel aging because with barrel aging, you're going to pick up some of that that barrel flavor and the flavor of whatever was in it before. And if you put a light beer in there, it's just going to overpower it. 
And the exception to that is those uh, two guys in Florida. Cigar City. Thank you. Short memory span. Um, the Cigar City guys make a light beer, and it's really quite good, very interesting beer. So, you know, there's exceptions to every rule. But I think darker beers tend to do better. They hold up better. Uh, again, the, the barrels are very porous. Air comes and goes. Uh, they're subject to temperature fluctuations. Thank you, sir. And, you know, the beers will gas off and can potentially become oxidized. Now, lighter beers uh, will oxidize a lot more than darker beers. The color component in the beer is actually an oxy- oxygen receiver, and so darker beers don't oxidize as much. They're not as delicate. So for, just for that reason alone, I think darker beers are better, better done that way. For souring beers, I don't think there's a stylistic you know, difference, except for that, again, if you're barrel aging it to get it sour, then you really do have to think about that oxidation. You don't want a beer that's all cardboardy and sour, because that'd just be weird. Do we have a second round of chocolates? Did we eat them all? Oh, see, bad. I've eaten them both. More chocolate? Oh. Okay, who has chocolate left? Oh, you see, smart guy. Okay. Now, did you bring enough to share? I, I have a knife. We can cut it into 20. No, I don't know. So, pretend you have chocolate. Smell, you can smell the paper. So the next beer is our, our Brother David's Belgian Double. And again, if you look first, you can see that it's substantially lighter uh, than the previous beer. So you know it's going to be lighter, both in body and flavor, probably. And this beer is also rather cold, so let it warm up a little bit or give it a swirl. Just like wine, you want some, some oxygen to get in there. Oxygen's good initially but you don't want it to be in there too long. This beer travels very well. There's a lot of banana going on in there. I get a lot of banana ester. I still have some chocolate in my mouth. It's going very good with it. (laughs) This also has a lot of banana flavor to it as well. And there's some, definitely some roasty, dark character. So the question about barrel aging being the next big thing, I think that actually Belgian-style beers are probably one of the big things right now. I think IPAs had their, their time. Very, they were very popular. People were drinking a lot of these incredibly hoppy beers. But uh, I myself am over that. And I'd like to see a show of hands. Who else is over that? Yeah. See, that's what I'm talking about. <clears throat> Yeah, and you know, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and myself personally, I like to drink beer, 
So if I have a double IPA to start off my beer day, I'm done, you know? And even a regular IPA, you have two, you're like, well, now what? I can go sleep or go home. Hallelujah, brother. Yeah. (laughs) Preaching to the choir. This is good to hear. So I think IPA, although I don't think we won't see any more of them, I don't think they're the big thing anymore. I think Belgian has replaced that, and that's good and bad. Belgians are incredibly strong a lot of times, and we as Americans aren't very good at doing things a little bit. We like to do things a lot. So we can't just have like a double. We need a triple or a quadruple, quintuple. Beer is so undrinkable. Even the yeast won't like it. So it's a double-edged sword, but I think that the Belgian styles are now, you know, enjoying a lot of favor. Um, I know I enjoy this beer quite a bit, but I don't enjoy all Belgians. But, you know, some Belgian styles are very nice, very drinkable. The Saison. Do you guys make a Saison? Yeah, yes, we do. Uh, I bet you, yeah, it's really good. We, uh, we have a series, a draft series. We do about four different new beers a year. Um, it's called our Ballhornen series, and Ballhornen is bootling for good drinking. And so we try and do something innovative, and our next beer is going to be a Saison because I think it's a very nice style, relatively low in alcohol, easy to drink. Not too overpowering yet. You know, a lot of character. So, IPAs are dead. (laughs) Tell your friends. Uh, Belgians are having their moment now. And barrel-aged beer is next. So, you shouldn't feel bad about spending the $40. (laughs) You know... uh, how many of you guys had a chance to try the Lost Abbey's poppy, whatever they call it, red poppy? Yeah. See how they are? They're out of beer. You pay all that money. If you see the guy Tommy Arthur, just punch him. Not in the head, just in, you know, mid-range. Uh, no, but it's a delicious beer. And uh, I, th- it was, I was really surprised to see them bring it because the last time I saw it, it was seventeen ninety-nine for a six-ounce bottle. No, 12-ounce bottle, sorry, 12-ounce bottle. So uh, the fact that they brought any of it I thought was pretty cool. I'm sorry. I'm not allowed to talk about those. Um, I don't know how the summer solstice came about. I definitely don't want to talk about that beer. Um, the winter solstice I'll talk about. Uh, the winter solstice is a, it's a winter warmer kind of beer. Very, very lowly hopped, uh, fireside kind of beer. And we spiced it a little bit, and it's quite a good seller. Um, the summer solstice, I just can't tell you. It's just all too horrible. You know, the company recently sold. The old owner, he's an unusual guy, memory problems related to smoking marijuana, I think. Um, Can't imagine in our county why that'd be. But the summer solstice came about because somehow we halved the winter solstice recipe. Yeah, it's weak, I admit. Next, next question, please. 
It was something along those lines. I wasn't there. I was in Asia. Did I mention I'm blameless? <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, there's a brewing company over there called Asia Pacific Brewing. Uh, they own about 30 breweries throughout Asia. Uh, I think they have eight in China, one in Singapore, four in Thailand, some in Vietnam, maybe four in Vietnam. And they wanted to, they realized watching what's going on in America, and I think the, the whole brewing world is watching what's going on in America. And uh, for years, the Germans were scratching their heads because the Germans are supposed to be, you know, they are the best. They make, it's the best beer. And they were losing breweries at about the same rate that we were gaining breweries in the, in the 80s, late 80s and early 90s, and they were confused as to how this could be happening. Um, and I think the folks in Singapore you know, was, were watching America and thought, well, we don't want to bend up like the Europeans and end up on the back side of this curve. If it's going to happen in Asia, we want to be the first. So they looked around for someone who would come out and build a brewery, and luckily I was unemployed. And uh, they brought me out, and I set up a brewery, built a brewery, uh, designed some beers, started brewing, and uh, worked as their brand ambassador for a few years. Uh, it was an interesting job because with 32 other breweries, and they didn't have any idea about craft, they were all big breweries. Uh, breweries in China don't make quality beer, they make quantity beer. And it's not a diss on you know, the Chinese beer, it's just how the Chinese drink. You know, they drink in volume, they don't want necessarily uh, really good beer, they just want a lot of really easy drinking beer. And that, that's changing uh, in some of the more affluent areas, you know, like Shanghai and Hong Kong, but the basic, you know, your average Chinese guy wants something he can, you know, drink a case of. So they really were interested in, in you know, understanding craft and being in the forefront of it and not, not catching up. So that's what that brewery was about. And they're actually a little, a little bit ahead of where they should have been. They struggled for the first couple of years, but they're doing quite well now. And when I got to Singapore, there were three breweries, and now there are nine and Singapore is pretty small. It's a country of five million people. Vietnam has a lot of breweries. Um, we were in Saigon, and there are ten brew pubs in Saigon and two large breweries. These are some beer-drinking folks. <laughs> it's whacked. They order, and they don't bring one bottle. They bring one case. They bring a crate of beer. And then, literally, you go out to these places, and there'll be people with empties, crate crates set up next to them. Like four or five crates of beer. Yeah, these are some beer drinking guys. And it's cheap. Yeah, about 15 cents a glass. U.S. So, should you beer folks want to travel to Vietnam? Uh, the beer? I am a big fan of Saigon, although anywhere in Vietnam is great. Food's great. People are super nice. You would think they'd hate Americans, particularly since when I first went there, they had a museum called the American War Crimes Museum, now changed to the American War Museum. <laughs> but they, don't hate, they don't hate you like you think they would, and who could blame them? Um, really nice folks. They have something called a biohoy. It is a... Biohoy, I think, literally translates into beer flour, in, like flour, flour. And these places get fresh draft beer every morning and it's consumed throughout the day and then it's done at night. So it's fresh beer, it's daily fresh. And it's super, super cheap. 
and it's where all the Vietnamese drink. And the beer can be really good to really terrible, depending on what brewery and what day and, and different things. But it comes and they just serve it in whatever container they got, like one of those, <laughs> by the liter. And I think it's like 70 cents a liter or something like that. It, it's crazy cheap. So, yeah, go to one of those. Yeah, Japan's got some serious uh, craft beer and some serious craft beer pricing. <laughs> so, yeah, if, if you go to Southeast Asia, if anyone wants to, feel free. If you're traveling to Southeast Asia, send me an email. I'll make some recommendations. See? It was worth the price of admission. <laughs> Other questions? He's a tour guide, too. <laughs> Do you, do you think that some of the drift in um, uh, you know, prevalence of American beer styles right now, American craft beer styles, uh, you know, away perhaps from the you know, uber-intense uh, imperial umpteen thousands, um, you know, is going more towards the, you know, our skills improving as brewers in this country to being better masters of subtleties of style rather than um, simply going for Mo Bigga Mo Betta? It's a trick question. You know that. Uh, well, of course it's a loaded question. I'm a brewer, Val. Come on. He makes the really... Well, you make really good beer. You make really good drinkable beer, too. I think that... Um, I, I don't think that we're going to see the end of the Uber beers because there's a certain market for that. And as I said, you know, we're Americans. We like that kind of thing. We like the you know, the double imperial IPA. But I do think that most of the breweries have, are going to start, you know, they're going to move away from that. And I think the breweries, that that's all they make, they may find themselves with a little bit of trouble. I think a lot of craft brewers, particularly in the early part of craft brewing in the 80s, uh, wanted intentionally to drink anything that wasn't light. You know, light beer, you know, beer had become so bland and ubiquitous that the, anything that wasn't that beer is what they wanted. And I don't know about you guys, but I, I kind of like that beer sometimes. You know, there's days that a Coors is okay with me. You know, hot day, boating, fine with Coors. So, am I going to get stoned later? <laughs> and we're talking rocks here. Um, I'm okay with that kind of beer. I don't, you know, it's not what I want every day, but I think there's a, there's a time and a place for every kind of beer. And I think a lot of folks, you just can't drink those big, giant beers all the time. It's just too much. And so I think you'll see a trend of lighter, more drinkable beers. I don't think you'll see anybody making Coors, um, because Coors already does that. Why would you want to try and compete with them? But I think you'll see people making you know, lighter, more drinkable beers of character, beers with you know, more flavor and character. Not to mention it's really difficult to make Coors. It's damn hard to make that kind of beer. Yeah. So, I mean, each time you remove a, you know, a layer of complexity or, or depth from a beer, you're showing any potential flaws, like you were saying. And it, it, they much more obvious. Yeah, you make a big IPA, you can hide all kinds of stuff. Uh, we didn't clean the keg, whatever. Maybe not. But, you, you know, big beers hide stuff. So those lighter beers are more difficult to make. And they also take longer to make sometimes, uh, depending on the style. If you're going to make lagers, a lager, typical lager takes anywhere from six to, you know, 12 weeks, and your typical ale takes two. 
And I think that's one reason that craft brewers have made ales as opposed to lagers. It, you know, it's just not so time-intensive. Now, come on. You know, folks that I personally follow their beer? So many. Um, I just like, I like to drink locally. So whenever I go somewhere, I, I try and drink whatever the local beer is. Um, Russian River. I think everybody loves his beer. I mean, what's not to like? Uh, he's a great brewer, makes great beers. There's a lot of great brewers, though. I mean, I'm mostly familiar with West Coast breweries and getting, you know, get a chance to follow them, like Steve's brewery. I don't see his beer out in our market very often, so I can't follow it. Um, and that's probably true with a lot of the East Coast brewers, too. I just don't, I don't know what's going on out here. And what's interesting about traveling around trips like this is you get to see these other things and you see what folks are doing. And, you know, there's a, you know, America's very big. And I think there's a different, a definite beer culture depending on the, the region you're in. Uh, I think, you know, Southern California is different than Northern. Uh, the Northwest, Washington and Oregon are different than Northern California. Definitely the lake area is, you know, different from the East Coast or the West Coast. So I don't think there's... Yes. Now there's a trend. I, I don't can't really wrap my head around the pumpkin beer. Now, Jolly Pumpkin doesn't make just pumpkin beer, but the pumpkin beer thing. You know, the Elysian Brewing has a pumpkin fest every year, and you would think there'd be like four pumpkin beers, but no, they're like 50, 60 pumpkin beers. How'd that happen? I'm still holding off. I haven't okay, you don't make a pumpkin? Good, good. We're making one for that festival this year, first time. We have... Uh, our original 10-barrel brewery, which we do all our R&D brewing on, our, our larger brewery is 100 barrels. It's 10 times as large. But we still use the 10-barrel brewery, mostly because we have it and we're really thrifty folks. And we'll be brewing the pumpkin beer on that. We brew a lot of our weird beers. We made a beer with redwood shoots in it, um, which sounds good, but <laughs> not as good as we thought. You know, Brian Hunt uh, at Moonlight just down the road from us makes one. His is really good. And I said, hey, Brian, can I steal that idea? He's like, yeah, sure. I, you know, it's not my idea. And he was really, he's very, a great brewer and a very nice sharing guy. And I went to his brewery and he walked me through, you know, how to, what part of the redwood I wanted. And I live in the middle of a redwood forest. I trimmed them all each morning and brought them down to the brewery and brewed with them. And we couldn't get enough in there to make it really interesting tasting until we got enough in there to make it really uninteresting tasting. <laughs> It's really disappointing. Somehow Brian is a better brewer than I am. These crazy guys at Elysian get a giant pumpkin. They hollow it out. They put beer in it. They age it in the pumpkin. And then they serve it like a cask. They drive a tap into the pumpkin and have cask pumpkin beer. What's wrong with those people? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> Actually, I went to that last year. It was quite a fun festival. Questions? Come on. 
No, you know, it's uh, it thing's huge. It's like a 300-pound pumpkin before they hollow it out. And the Seattleites are a little odd to begin with. I can say that because I lived there for a while. Uh, at the end of the festival, people literally shred the pumpkin and eat it. <laughs> There's nothing left. So, anybody else have any... Uh other questions, pertinent or non-pertinent, you know. I, I think Val loves non-pertinent questions as much as the pertinent ones. All right. I'm sorry? Do I have a favorite airline? <laughs> oh, definitely. Singapore Air. Never fly anything else. Uh, you know, our, we have a Barney Flats oatmeal stout, which you guys had. That's my breakfast stout. It's got oatmeal in it. It's good for you. Filled with scrubbing bubbles. <laughs> we like to call that smooth and creamy, <laughs> not slimy. Smooth and creamy. Well, you know, a lot of oatmeal stouts have a whole lot of oatmeal in them. Um, I think we use about 400 pounds, something like that, 500 pounds. Uh, so it's not that much for the malt bill. It's about 10% of the malt bill. So, yeah, it's intentionally kept low because we didn't want too much of that. that it's, it's almost an oily kind of feel to it uh, if you use too much. Yeah, it can hurt the head retention if you get too much. You know what? I, when I worked in Singapore, we made a, a wit beer, which we used oats in. But you might imagine that living on the tropics, you know, in the tropics, on the equator, things spoil pretty quickly. And apparently oats really spoil quickly. And so we'd get a load in, and by the time we were halfway done with the load, most of them would be getting ready to go off. And one of our brewers one day said, oh, let me make an, an OPA, an oat pale ale. And I said, really? And I said, whatever, we're going to throw them out if you don't, we don't use them. So he brewed up an, an, you know, pale ale with oats. And it's really a delicious style. I think we see more of those. Oat pale ale. Yeah. 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 Sounds good. All so, right. Well, go ahead. We have, uh, I think we're about, we're, we're getting close to the end of the evening. They're getting, uh, they're starting to wrap things up downstairs. Um, Val, it's been lovely having you come up and talk to everybody. I think for the Brewers you, Association, Steve. I'd like to thank both you and all of you because, you know, we could stand here and commiserate and talk about beer all day, but it wouldn't be very exciting um, when you all are here and we have an audience to uh, to play to. It's a lot more fun. So. It's a good audience. Yeah, yeah. Thank you all for coming in. Thank you, Fal, for... Uh, thank you. This podcast was produced by the Brewers Association and presented by Craft Beer Radio. To find more information on Savor or further podcasts, visit craftbeerradio.com slash savor or craftbeer.com. This content is released under the Creative Commons license. Visit craftbeerradio.com for more information.